Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on, but we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. It is abundantly clear that the Democrats' 2024 playbook is to try to bankrupt Donald Trump and to also send him to jail. We just saw that in the New York City fraud case where they're forcing Donald Trump to pay $355 million in punitive damage, although he will appeal it. We also see this in the numerous indictments that Donald Trump is facing, the numerous trials that he has on his docket over the next few months heading into the election. So where does all of this stand? What are the merits of these various indictments and these various cases that Donald Trump is facing? What's the timeline of them? And what should you know? Also, does the revelations that Joe Biden has mishandled classified information from the 1970s, does that impact the documents case against Donald Trump? And how does Fannie Willis's behavior impact the Fulton case. All of this and more with Annie McCarthy, who is a former chief assistant U.S. attorney, contributing editor at National Review, as well as a Fox News contributor. And I believe always just does a a really brilliant job of objectively breaking down all this complex information and putting it in layman's terms for the rest of us. So stay tuned for Annie McCarthy. This is a a big episode. We're going to get into a lot, a lot of detail. You're going to want to listen. Stay tuned. Andy, I want to start with the New York City, the the fraud case against Donald Trump. He's going to have to pay $355 million in damage. Uh, You've got billionaire business guys like Kevin O'Leary saying that, look, if Trump is guilty, so is every real estate developer in America. What do you make of the merits of this judgment against Trump? Well, I think it violates the old adage, Lisa, that the the punishment is supposed to fit the crime, which is what we're, you know, I'm saying crime, we're talking about a civil context, but this really was treated uh, in punitive terms. It was treated as if it were a criminal case, right? So, um, but that is the principle that we're supposed to, to go by. And what's offensive about this is that the penalty is just so out of whack with what Trump did wrong here, of which there is, no, there's pretty 
significant evidence of inflation of assets. O'Leary may be right that this is a much more widespread practice. Certainly, Donald Trump didn't uh, invent it, and that goes to you know one of his major defenses that you know unfortunately doesn't play uh, as well. Well, I, I'm, what I'm talking about is his. Um, his claim that he was selectively prosecuted. And the way I would put that is it it plays much better as an atmospheric than it does as a legal claim in the sense that not a lot of people get their, you know, either charges or lawsuits against them thrown out because they're, um, they've been selectively uh, prosecuted. But here, what they did in New York was they took what I regard as a monstrous statute in this context, this New York law, 6312, their business law. And it's really intended for consumer fraud type situations. It's intended for circumstances where you have somebody or some business that persistently uh, engages in dishonesty in uh, advertising and the like. And what you have are, you know, hundreds, thousands, even millions of consumers, each of whom, you know, deals with the company in a very limited way so that, um, you know, you, you, you pay a few bucks or, or maybe a little more than that for uh, a product or what have you. Um, but nobody has nobody's transaction is big enough that it's worth suing over, right? Um, so you can kind of see why they would want to have a law to protect people like that. It's almost like what happens in class actions, where you know they let a bunch of people who no single one of them has enough uh, of a harm um, that it's worth going through the expense and aggravation of having to file a lawsuit. So they let them all sort of join together. These are usually driven by uh, law firms, uh, and they they sue somebody who has persistently engaged in some kind of a fraudulent practice. But in Trump's case, it doesn't make sense to apply this because you're not dealing with a consumer fraud situation. Instead, you're dealing with um, high stakes financial transactions in which both sides are sophisticated financial actors who do their own due diligence. So, you know, Deutsche Bank does not say, oh, Donald Trump, let sure, we'll lend you $500 million as long as you say that's what your assets are worth, right? These businesses do their own due diligence. They're in the risk business. Well, and Deutsche uh, and Bank's they, not claiming that they're a, a victim, right? Like they were happy with the way everything went. So they're not, you know, they're not saying they're a victim in any of this. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's just the thing. There is no victim, uh, and that is probably, I think, why this case bothers people as much as it does. Um, you know, in a fraud case, in the U.S. Attorney's Office where I worked, we had standards where if a fraud wasn't above ten thousand dollars, we wouldn't do the case, even if there was. A victim, because it's simply you know you have sparse resources in a prosecutor's office, and for the to get the public the bang for their buck, you need to 
take cases that are more serious than that. And if they're less serious than that, you you know, you rely on people to be able to go sue in small claims court, or maybe the state will take a case. But we wouldn't even think about taking a fraud case unless there either were victims or we could prove ironclad that if people weren't victims, at least there was a conspiracy to make them victims. Like there was a, you know, clear intent to defraud people. And in this statute, because it's made, it's designed to make it easier for consumers in a consumer fraud situation um, to get some recompense, they don't require proof either of fraudulent intent or that there were any victims. So you can easily see how somebody who actually hasn't done anything, I don't want to say he didn't do anything wrong, because even if you're dealing with a counterparty who's a sophisticated financial actor, you're supposed to act in good faith and you're supposed to you know, give as accurate an evaluation of your assets that they are relying on um, in the transaction uh, as you can. But you know, if you don't have a victim, then ordinarily prosecutorial discretion would say, you know, we should move on to a case where there are victims because, you know, we're stewards of of the public fisc. And if you're going to use the public's law enforcement resources, it ought to be in cases where a harm, you know, real harm was done. And that obviously didn't happen here. You know, and it's interesting, too, because uh, Governor Hochul is obviously concerned about the optics of this, of, of any, you know, real estate developers, any, you know, any business owners wanting to do business in the state and in the city of New York again. Uh, she said in a, in a radio interview that this is just a really extraordinary, unusual circumstance. Obviously, that extraordinary, unusual circumstance is Trump. Um, you know, I guess what has the left done? in its efforts to get Trump. I, I mean, it, it, it seems like a lot of norms have been destroyed. The rule of law has been destroyed. Um, you know, I, I guess, what does that mean more broadly? Well, yeah, I, I think that the fundamental assumption of Trump's uh, biggest critics is that they can construct a law that is uh, as, as, you know, the Latin phrase goes uh, in the law, sui generis, that is that it's a law that applies only to Trump, that these are, you know, that he's a singular threat uh, to the country. And therefore, all of these precedents that they set and all of these uh, prosecutions that they've waged uh, don't set precedents that can be applied against anyone else because this is just Trump law. This is only for him. And the fact is that just Things don't work that way, you know. I I remember when I was a prosecutor doing terrorism cases. Um, you know, a lot of people wanted to uh, because they wanted to show that the uh, the courts worked against terrorism, even though it's a different kind of a, a an animal to deal with than regular crime. Um, you know, you wanted to be able to cut corners in terms of uh, what you needed to prove in order to hold these guys accountable, and you wanted to cut down their due process rights to discovery of the case um, because that would create all kinds of, uh, you know, giving them our intelligence creates all kinds of other uh, national security threats. And, 
you know, the the problem with all of that is those precedents apply in other cases. So if you, you know, if you would trit due process in a terrorism case, those principles are no longer just going to apply in terrorism. They're going to apply across the board because it's either just or it isn't. And the same thing is true with respect to what they're doing with Trump. Uh, in this case, it's okay to take a consumer fraud statute that wasn't intended to apply to someone like Trump and apply it to someone like Trump. And the fact is, as far as the left is concerned, he's not a unique threat. He may be the personal embodiment of everything they hate, but there's a lot of stuff they hate. You know, they hate uh, gun manufacturers. They hate uh, fossil fuels. They hate, you know, all kinds of stuff. And if anyone thinks that they would hesitate to use against their other political enemies the principles that they've now gotten blessed in court uh, by using them against Trump. I think you're you're just crazy, and I think you're operating under norms that no longer apply. You know, when I was a prosecutor in New York, and I, when I was a, a New Yorker growing up, the legal culture in New York was that you would never run for office saying. If you elect me, I will use the power of the state against our political enemies because that would be disqualifying. You know, the whole idea that a prosecutor would do anything other than uh, uphold the law in an even-handed way without uh, fear or favor. If you if you departed from that line, you were not qualified to have the job. But I think in the last twenty years, as progressives have uh, gotten a sort of a power clamp on a lot of these blue cities. The thing people, the thing people need to come to terms with is progressives are not as offended as most people are by the idea that you use the tools and processes of the state in a punitive way. They think that that's part of the way that you advance the cause. So, for example, um, Letitia James, the state attorney general who prosecuted Trump, she ran for office promising that if you elect me, uh, I will use my power against Trump. He's going to know what my name was uh, or what my name is. That's what she said in her advertisements. I think, Lisa, that she won by maybe 30 points, maybe 40 points. Um, so I think people have to come to grips with the fact that it's not just that the legal culture has changed, the culture has changed. It didn't used to be the case that in New York that people would want to elect that kind of a person to wield power. It used to be that somebody who, in a very kind of Soviet way, said to you, you know, show me the man and I'll find the crime, that was disqualifying. Now that person wins in a landslide. We've got to take a quick commercial break. More with Annie McCarthy on the other side. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. 
I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's scary about where we've arrived. And the irony, too, is they could end up bankrupting the the state in the process in the sense of, I think there's already been 10 billionaires in a four-year period of time that have left New York for Florida. And I imagine that more are going to be leaving you know, the state yeah, that's I, so so reliant upon the 1% to pay, I think, something like 42% of the state's tax receipts. So yeah, uh, I, I used to know that I used to know that stat better than I do now. But I do know that the number of people who pay the lion's share of taxes, especially in New York City, um, is infinitesimally small compared to the population. And I think one of the fallouts of COVID was a lot of those people who were in finance realized that they didn't need to be in New York to do business. Um, and that's that's hurt the city in a big way. Absolutely. Um, you know, so Trump is also facing, you know, a lot of indictments. Uh, he's got different trials coming up. Can, can you kind of take us through sort of the timing and the sequencing of what he is facing over the next few months and what we should be yeah, looking so for? Yeah, so it's... It, yeah, it's a moving target. So the the original thing that uh, Jack Smith, everybody kind of uh, who was involved in this on the uh, on the get Trump side was expecting that the federal prosecutions were going to go first, especially the uh, election interference case that was brought by the Biden uh, administration special prosecutor or special counsel Jack Smith. Uh, that's the one they were all banking on. Um, and I think the reason for that is that case is deemed to be, I think, a proxy for the impeachment that they never got done because the impeachment investigation that was done in connection with Trump uh, post Capitol riot was incompetent. So they ended up charging him with something that in a, certainly in a court of law you couldn't prove. He didn't, you know, incitement to insurrection. He didn't commit the crime of incitement. And factually speaking, to my mind, this this wasn't close to being what an insurrection is. And I thought that there was a valid impeachment um, case that you could have made against Trump, but they never made it and they didn't investigate it. And then they had the January 6th committee 
which kind of did what was what was supposed to be the impeachment investigation of Trump, except it was so um, partisan and one-sided, uh, and it was so dedicated to the proposition of being kind of a um, a political ad rather than an actual set of um, hearings where you try to get at the truth that it really didn't have bipartisan credibility. But they've always wanted, you know, a knockout blow against Trump over the Capitol riot and what led up to it, which is what Jack Smith uh, and his election interference prosecution in Washington is. The problem with that, there's many problems with that case, but to say with the timeline, which is what you asked me about, what he was trying to do um, which would be a major due process violation if it was done to anyone else. But this, again, this is like Trump justice, so they figure they can get away with it, is he got he first indicted Trump for the Mar-a-Lago documents and got Trump locked into a trial with a date of May 20th. Now, a lot of us, um, myself included, who've actually prosecuted classified information cases, thought that that was an utterly unrealistic trial date because classified information cases are very hard to get to trial, even if you're trying hard. Um, But Smith's idea was to get him locked into that May 20th trial. And then after he indicted, after he indicted that, then he indicted the election interference case and talked Judge Tanya Chutkin, who's an Obama appointee who's presiding over that case in Washington. He talked her into a March 4th trial date. So what people need to understand about what Smith was trying to accomplish there is that unlike these civil cases that we've watched where Trump had the option to show up or not, and he could pretty much come and go as he pleased, in a criminal case, the defendant has to be there for every moment of the trial. And these cases that Smith is talking about, Lisa, are two to three month estimate trials. So his idea was to have the Republican candidate for the presidency basically tethered to courtrooms from early March into August during the campaign. And then, assuming that he got him convicted in the first case, by the time August came around, it would be time for sentencing in that case after the, you know, after the second trial had taken place. So their idea was to basically keep him in court for you know four to six months and then get him sentenced uh, and if he gets convicted on in the Washington case, the sentence would clearly be um, I don't know if the judge would actually put him in prison uh, but those what he's charged him there uh, with calls for prison time. So that was the way they set the table and the problem that Smith immediately ran into is, the May 20th day for the classified documents was completely real, unrealistic. That case, I don't think, has a chance of going prior to the election. Um, if, you, if you want, we can get into why it's so hard to get one of those cases to trial. But more to the point, the Washington case, Trump ended up raising immunity uh, in these pretrial motions. I don't know whether they really thought that they were going to win on immunity, But the reason that immunity is so important uh, to a uh, defendant in Trump's position is it's one of the few issues in federal criminal law that you're allowed to appeal pre-trial. 
uh, most most things that come up in a federal criminal case, you have to get you have to take the trial judge's rulings, and then the case gets tried. And if the guy gets convicted, he gets sentenced, and then the whole case goes up to the court of appeals. You don't get to appeal stuff prior to trial. But there are some issues like double jeopardy and immunity where the offense is deemed to be having the trial in the first place. Um, and those things you're allowed to appeal pre-trial. So this was important to Trump because Trump's goal here is delay. He wants to push especially the federal prosecutions against him beyond election day, because if he wins the election, then his nominee will be running the Justice Department and they can simply dismiss, they can fire Smith and dismiss the cases against him. He doesn't even, you know, all the stuff about will Trump pardon himself. In theory, he wouldn't even have to pardon himself because they'd be running the Justice Department. But he could pardon himself if the court gave uh, the, the Trump Justice Department a hard time about dismissing these cases. But, but in any event, that was his, you know, that's what his objective is. So, the immunity case, the immunity claim has been, um, has pushed the March 4th trial date off the calendar because first the case went to the Court of Appeals, the DC Circuit, and even though Trump lost there, he's now appealed to the Supreme Court. And the rule of the road in federal criminal prosecution is you're always in one court at a time. So if the case is on appeal, Judge Chutkin doesn't have any jurisdiction to do anything in the district court. So that case is frozen now. They're not even making motions or doing discovery or, or doing anything, which has, has Smith frustrated because even though this is against Justice Department policy, he's being driven by the political calendar. He wants to get this case tried prior to election day, which is what the plan uh, always was. So now... Because the feds have not been able to hold their calendar and have the, the trials in, you know, starting in the spring that they thought they were going to have, you know, March 4th and then May 20th. Um, since that opened up the calendar for March, we go back to the Alvin Bragg prosecution against Trump for the hush money deal. Uh, he, Bragg, who is the prosecutor who won't prosecute in New York. He's like the poster child for uh, progressive prosecutors. If you're a hardened criminal in New York, you have a very good chance of either not being prosecuted at all or having your felonies pleaded down to misdemeanors. But if you're Trump, they take what should be at most one misdemeanor business records misstatement infraction, and he turns it into 34 felonies for which Trump could go to jail for over a century in theory. Um, but when he, he was the first prosecutor to bring an indictment against Trump, that was uh, in the spring, I believe, of last year. And at that point, the judge, uh, Juan Merchon, who's a Democrat, um, set the trial for March 25th of 2024. And it didn't look like that case was actually going to go because Bragg said that he would defer to the feds. And he was hoping, as all the Democrats were hoping, that Jack Smith was going to get his case to trial in Washington on March 4th. Since that's now not going to happen, the it looks like the Bragg case is back on the, on the uh, docket and it will go first on March 25th. And how long does a case like that take? You know, like how long from start to finish does something like that normally take? 
Yeah, so that, that's a great question. I, you know, I'm uh, in my career as a prosecutor. I I actually prosecuted the longest federal criminal trial in American history. I was one of five prosecutors on the team, the junior member, um, which was a 17 month trial. Uh, and I also had a nine month trial while I was a prosecutor. And I, over time, I basically developed a theory that if if the prosecutor tells you that the case is going to take something longer than four to six weeks, that's a that's a kind of a shorthand way of telling you they don't have any idea how the hell long it's going to take. Um, because you can't predict the trial. A lot, a lot of stuff happens at trial that um, uh, that you just can't predict ahead of time. And if it gets beyond a, a sort of a finite horizon, it becomes very hard to, to gauge how long these cases are going to take. The the hush money case is a pretty finite affair, and they're predicting that that would take like two to four weeks. You have to um, give a little bit of rhythm and the timing when you're dealing with Trump because it's going to be very, you know, they may take a week just to pick a jury. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of work that has to go into trying to, you know, get a jury that satisfies both sides that it's uh, that it's fair and impartial or you know, satisfies them as much as they're going to get. I guess what I'm trying to figure out is what's the probability that he could be convicted on some of these indictments before Election Day? Okay, so I think there's now a high probability that he will be convicted in Manhattan. Um, and I can, I, I can go through why I believe that's the case. Um, I'm not sure that will hurt him politically that much. Of course, if he got a jail sentence, that would that would matter. Um, but I think politically, the Democrats should not want to start with the hush money case because it's an objectively ridiculous case, and New York has already demonstrated between you know the E. Jean Carroll civil cases and now this um, this civil fraud case. I think the public pretty much figures that New York is rigged against Trump. So I think this case is almost it's easy for me to say because, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not I don't have any prison exposure. But I think the New York case is almost like a no lose proposition for Trump in the sense that if he beats the case, he's got a very strong argument that this whole lawfare thing is a is a partisan witch hunt, which is what he said all along. And if he loses the case, it's people. A lot of people are just going to dismiss it as you know. Oh, there goes New York again because the case is objectively ridiculous. The case where he really has the biggest risk, I think, of a conviction pre-trial, and this depends on again whether they can get it to trial, is Smith's Washington case. And the thing that I didn't add. That is, uh, that is the wild card in terms of whether that case can go to trial or not, is even though I think Trump is going to lose on immunity before the Supreme Court, immunity has kind of already served its purpose for Trump because he's gotten all this delay out of the appeal of it. And what happened in the interim, Lisa, is the Supreme Court announced a few weeks ago that they would hear the challenge of a number of the January 6th defendants, not Trump, to the Justice Department's very controversial use against them of an obstruction statute that's really intended for obstruction in business fraud cases, like things like shredding documents and the like. And the Justice Department has used it against the Capitol rioters 
And what they're arguing is this, this is not the use that Congress intended for this statute. Um, the reason it's so important is the Washington indictment brought by Smith against Trump has four counts. The two most important counts of the case and the two that would have the heaviest sentence if he were to get convicted are obstruction counts brought under the same statute, which means as a practical matter, I don't think Judge Chutkin can can start the trial of Trump in Washington until the Supreme Court rules on the obstruction case or the obstruction statute in connection with the January 6th defendants. They're not going to rule on that. They're not going to hear argument in that case until I think April, maybe around April 15th or April 16th. So we're not going to get a decision in that case until the end of June, more than likely. And depending on how that case goes, it could be possible that uh, the court upholds the use of the, the statute the way the Justice Department's been doing it, or it could be that Smith has to do major surgery on his case, in which case he'll have to supersede the indictment. You know, dependent Trump, of course, hopes that uh, it's such a momentous uh, decision in favor of people who are challenging the statute that it will dismantle Smith's case and he won't be able to bring it. But we'll have to see what the Supreme Court does. The only thing I would say um, in anticipation of it is I believe the use of this obstruction statute against Trump is much more problematic for the prosecutor than the use of it against the Capitol rioters. Because what the obstruction case comes down to is what does the statute mean by corrupt obstruction? What the statute says is it's anybody um, who obstructs a proceeding, including a congressional proceeding, um, by corrupt activity. And corrupt is a very vague word. It's a very ambiguous word because there's a lot of stuff that we do that's corrupt that's actually not illegal, right? And there's a lot of stuff that you do that's corrupt that is illegal. So it seems to me that with that statute, it makes a lot more sense to apply it to somebody who, say, takes a flagpole and hits a police officer uh, during the Capitol riot than it is to apply it to Trump, who is not charged in a violent crime. And the obstruction theory that Smith has is that Trump relied on a cockamamie legal theory that he knew, that Trump supposedly knew was invalid, uh, that, uh, that the vice president had the authority to discount state-certified electoral votes. I, I think Trump's going to have a very strong argument that that's not what Congress had in mind uh, when they enacted that obstruction statute. But I dilate on this because it's probably the most important thing in response to the question you asked me, which is, if Trump does Trump run a risk of a very serious uh, criminal conviction prior to Election Day? And I, the, the only way I can answer that is if the Supreme Court leaves Smith's case intact and the case can get tried starting in, say, July, um, then I think Trump runs a, a very high risk of being convicted. Quick break. More on all these indictments. Stay with us. 
I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go, like, how do I detach from my this idea of, what do, is, that, is that my baggage? It look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, you mentioned the sort of stretching of the obstruction for the January Sixers. I mean, there seems to be a lot of that. When you look at, you know, Bragg sort of turning a misdemeanor into a felony that's already passed the statute of limitations or, you know, Fulton County on Rico or... You know, I mean, there just seems to be a, a lot of stretching of the yeah. law and maneuvering of the law and, you know, and, 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 and you know, just taking a lot of um, what's the right word? Uh, taking a lot of um, blanking on the right word. But uh, well, they're taking liberty. liberty with, sure. Exactly. Um, to, deny li- to deny one's liberty. To so. deny liberty. Well, yeah, I'll say one irony. thing. If, if I could say one thing about that, though, which is the um, the elephant in the room, so to speak. You know, it's been against the law of the United States since 1870 to commit insurrection. And 1,260 people, I believe, have been prosecuted so far by the Justice Department in connection with the quote-unquote insurrection of January 6th. Not a single person, not just Trump, not a single person has been charged with insurrection. And you wouldn't have to have extravagant theories about obstruction and civil rights and fraud and RICO and turning, uh, you know, a business records 
uh, faux pas into 34 felonies. You wouldn't have to do any of that stuff if they had just a nice, clean insurrection case. Insurrection's a, a, a federal criminal statute, uh, section, I think, 2383 of the criminal code. It's been on the books, as I said, for like a century and a half. If they had an insurrection case, all of these problems go away. You just charge a guy with in- insurrection, prove it beyond a reasonable doubt at trial. Why do you figure the Justice Department's never done that? Because it ain't it. They don't have it. You know, if they had it, this would be the easy, you know, the, the shortest distance between two points is still a straight line. You know, insurrection's the straight line here. If they had the case, then all of this goes away. And none of us would be defending Trump on insurrection if, they, if he had actually done an insurrection. If there had been an insurrection and he commanded it uh, in some way that they could prove by evidence, um, I'd offer to come out of retirement to to prosecute the case myself, but they don't have the case. That's the problem they've always had. Well, you know, and this just frustrates me so much because I, I hate things that are unfair and an unequal application of things. You know, I'm all for like, you know, I felt that way about Farah. Like, okay, fine. I don't want people doing business with foreign countries and not, you know, being open and transparent about it here in the United States. But like, if you're not going to go after everyone, then, you know, go fly a kite. Right. But and right. That's, with all this Trump stuff, it's only it always goes in yep. one direction. Um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, does in the in the documents case for, for Trump, does the fact that the special counsel and Biden's own Department of Justice found that he's willfully mishandled classified documents since the 1970s, by the way, when you're a senator, which takes a real effort to, to, to do that, to try to take documents out of the skiff, which I imagine is what ultimately happened, or when he was vice president, when he didn't even have the classification authority that Trump did as president. Does that impact that case at all? Does it take the, the teeth out of the case? The fact that, you know, seems like everybody's doing it, but only one man is is being persecuted for it? Well, I do think that, you know, one of the things that Trump is going to raise, and this goes to an issue that we started to talk about at the beginning, which is a selective prosecution claim. And I think he's got a very good selective prosecution claim because the the case in Mar-a-Lago is mishandling of classified information coupled with obstruction. And I think actually the the Justice Department and Smith were foolish on this score. They shouldn't have, you know, they indicted like three dozen uh, classified information counts. They should have. They should have tried this case as a straight obstruction, charged it and tried it as a straight obstruction, grand jury obstruction case. And Smith might have had a chance to get that case to trial rather than what's now happened to him, which is he's all hung up on these admissibility issues in connection with classified information. But um, the reason I think he's got a good, uh, that Trump has a good selective prosecution claim is Biden clearly engaged in willful mishandling of classified information. um, And he's being treated very differently from Trump. Hillary Clinton, I think, also uh, engaged in willful mishandling of classified information, among other things they could have charged her with. And she got a complete pass from what's essentially the same Justice Department. I mean, you know, the Obama-Biden administration, the Biden administration is just a continuation, particularly at the Justice Department level, of the Obama-Biden administration. So you have this one Justice Department straddling over two administrations that had these three cases 
Um, they gave Hillary a pass on both classified documents and obstruction because uh, a, a number of the things that they bleach bitted and destroyed was after they got a congressional subpoena and no one ever prosecuted for the, them for that. I think if you go back over what Comey um, famously said in his press conference, he almost exclusively spoke about classified information and never even mentioned the obstruction part of it. Um and there were other things they could have brought against Hillary too, but they didn't. So you have Trump has classified information and obstruction. They're charging him, and they didn't just charge him. I mean, it's like a forty-count indictment that he could go to jail for. You know, I guess is it three hundred years, four hundred years? I lost count going through it. And then they give Biden a complete pass, and they gave Hillary a complete pass. And the thing with Biden, Lisa, which I'm really glad you brought up, is. You know, if you find if a couple of things about hers um, report, and he's going to testify apparently, I, I think on March 12th, if I remember. But, you know, first of all, if her found that he acted willfully, which I think the, you know, when you read the report, the evidence doesn't admit of any other sensible conclusion. As you pointed out, it's, it's not easy as a senator to get stuff out of a skiff. That you're not supposed to be as a senator, you're not allowed to take the stuff, right? Um, so the thing is, the the statute that um, all this is brought under the Espionage Act, even though it doesn't necessarily have to involve espionage, the prongs of the Espionage Act don't require willfulness. There's one of them that re- that only all you need is gross negligence. So if you found willfulness is the highest criminal intent uh, in the law, um, it requires it, it like almost defies the old adage that um, uh, ignorance of the law is no excuse. I mean, you have to know what, what willfulness means is the, that you act with knowledge that what you're doing is wrong and you do it with a bad purpose. Um, so that's what you have to prove for willfulness. For gross negligence, you don't even have to prove intent. You just have to prove that the person was careless uh, in, in a in a really discreditable way with something that the person had an obligation to safeguard. Uh, the only reason we allow there's not there's not too many statutes in the criminal law where you allow someone to be convicted of gross negligence, but in the classified information context, you're dealing with people who have to take an oath that they're going to safeguard classified information and they're trained how to do it. So if they don't follow that obligation, they deserve to be prosecuted. Being Saying I was careless um, would be a defense to most criminal charges. It's not a defense in classified information. It's a crime. So if you're finding, as her did, that, that Biden acted willfully, you could easily prove that he acted with gross negligence. That's a layup. Um, so it's very hard to say that you shouldn't, you can't bring a case like that or you shouldn't. And then the other thing is he justifies or rationalizes not bringing the case because Biden is basically senescent. He says that he's a, a well-meaning, uh, elderly man with a bad memory. Well, you know, in the law, the question isn't what is your state of mind now? The question is, what was your state of mind when you committed the actions that were a crime? His current state of mind goes to the important constitutional question of whether he's fit to stand trial. 
That is, whether he's mentally competent enough um, to meaningfully aid his defense and to understand the nature of the proceedings. Uh, and I think Biden would easily meet that standard. But you know, the idea that he's currently um, in, in cognitive decline is not an issue. It's not a guilt or innocence issue. You know, if he filched a document, say, in 1985, um, the issue is, like, did he know what he was doing in 1985, not whether he knows what he's doing now? So I found, you know, I, I, I think her's getting it from both sides, and he, he probably, uh, I think he deserves it from the right, because, you know, he basically pushed the envelope as hard as you can push it to try to rationalize not charging someone who, who deserved uh, to be charged, or at least you can't charge a sitting president. The Justice Department guidance says you can't indict a sitting president, but he should at least have recommended an indictment. Uh, and I have to say, I'm, I'm, um, uh, I, I find it precious that the Democrats are upset that her put in his report the reason why he didn't think that Biden should be charged. They're going crazy because of how much that hurts him politically in the campaign. But they're conveniently skipping past, just like the, they do with Hillary, they're conveniently skipping past that the prosecutor decided not to prosecute him. You know, if he recommended charges, that would have been the end of Biden's candidacy. Quick break. Stay with us. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I 
detach from my from this idea of what do, is that is that my baggage? Doesn't look like my baggage. I mean, I know. Oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you murder someone 10, 15 years ago when you were lucid or, you know, and then now, I mean, it wouldn't matter if you murder someone, you murder someone. And then now all of a sudden you're a well-meaning elderly old man, you're still going to be, you know, tried and, and convicted of that murder. And it's like, it's just so egregious what Joe Biden did to have when you're in the Senate as a, a vice president to continuously and repeatedly mishandle classified documents and then tell your ghostwriter in 2017, you have done so, you don't feel like turning them over. And then to look Americans in the face on 60 Minutes and, and ridicule and question your opponent's ethics. And then too, I, I think as a president, you have a, a much better argument of you know having the ultimate authority on handling classified documents, declassifying it, and I know there's the question of uh, obstruction of justice or, or what have you that people are making, but there's a much clearer argument. It's a much more gray area for I believe a president to say, "Hey, you know, I had the ultimate authority here." When you didn't, as vice president, you sure as hell didn't as vice president. Um, yet you know, Trump's the one that is you know getting screwed, right? Um, you know, I, I want to. Or, or feel free to react to that. But I, I also wanted to get you on uh, before we go on Fannie Willis and her actions out of Fulton County and Fulton County. And if that jeopardizes her case uh, against Trump or, or what bearing that has on that. Yeah. The only other thing I'd add to what you said about um, uh, about the documents case is I, I've never been. um overly impressed by Trump's argument that he he was president, so he had declassification authority. That would be a thing if he could prove that he actually declassified the stuff, uh, and it remains to be seen whether he can do that. There's no evidence that, that but he did. can he just say, like, a fairy godmother of just saying, I I want these documents or declassify? I mean, doesn't, can't just a president, I mean, can't he just basically do whatever he wants when it comes to classified documents as president of the United States? I don't think so. I mean, the the Presidential Records Act, which he is relying on, um, is, is a kind of a two-edged sword for him because one of the things it requires is that presidential acts have to be documented. And there's no documentary evidence that he ever declassified anything. Declassification is actually a pretty important thing. Who, who would in be in charge of that? Sorry, I, I just want to make sure that yeah. I'm full understanding. I'm not trying to interrupt her. Oh, but, sure. um, um, so who would be in charge? Right. That, uh, surely that wouldn't be a president's responsibility to say, hey, I'm, I'm writing this down and do, right. Wouldn't that be. So, I, I mean, I, I guess it, it just still seems like there is ambiguity, at least. Would, would you well, there, say there's at least some ambiguity in this where, you know, it it, it just I don't know, it, even in, in your description of it, which, you know, I trust your judgment, which is why you're on the show. I think you're brilliant. It, it just seems like there's still some, you know, gray area, still some finesse, still some, you know what I mean? Like, there's just still yeah, no, there's there's not clear. There's, there's gray area in the Presidential Records Act. Now, on the obstruction side of it. Uh, there's no gray area because he got a grand jury subpoena that that didn't tell him to turn over the classified information because uh, I guess they they understood that he could make a claim like that. So what the grand jury subpoena says is turn over all documents that have physical classification markings. So in in that sense, 
whether he declassified or not is irrelevant. And similarly, with respect to the classified information counts, they're not actually classified information counts. The, the, um, the Espionage Act doesn't describe classified information. It says national defense information. So whether it's classified and has been declassified is kind of beside the point if the document is national defense information. So they have comebacks on that. But what I was what I was trying to pivot to was to say the the barometer that her used or the metric that her used not to prosecute um, Biden under circumstances where Trump is being prosecuted was cooperation. And that was preposterous because in our system, people are expected to cooperate with investigators. If you get, you know, if you get a, a subpoena, you're supposed to produce a, the documents. And if you cooperate with the investigators, that's an important thing to bring to the court's attention at sentencing, but it has nothing to do with guilt or innocence. So in this system, if you don't cooperate with the investigation, you can be charged with obstruction. But the fact that Biden, what there, what her says is Biden cooperated and Trump didn't. That's a good reason to charge Trump with obstruction. It's not a good reason to not charge Biden with classified information counts. Um, you know the fact that, as you you talked about a murder before, if I murder someone, but then I'm cooperative with the you know with the police, I waive my rights, I confess, I do all the things they ask me to. They're not going to say, well, you know, you were so cooperative, we're not going to charge you with murder. They're still going to charge me with murder. But right? do we believe that Joe Biden was cooperative in the sense of he's had these documents since the 1970s? He's had them since he was vice president. He told his ghostwriter he he knew he had them. He didn't want to turn them over. They ended up in multiple locations. So, I mean, do we well, really believe like if that was Trump in this situation, would he be? You know what I mean? I, I just I, I don't know. I, I don't believe that he was cooperative. It doesn't. No, he's not. It, it, he's it doesn't not pass cooperative the smell test for me. Well, he's not cooperative in the cosmic sense, but in the law enforcement sense, what you what you gauge cooperation on is how did the guy act after the police you know, we're on to him. And after, uh, you know, it, it, he was confronted with what he had done. So you're right. I mean, there's decades of bad behavior. And the nature of this is that he was he was uncooperative. But the when you're talking about cooperation in a, in a law enforcement sense, and whether a court would give somebody credit for cooperating at sentencing, what that deems with is the small window of time between the time the police and the and the prosecutors confront the person with his wrongdoing, and then how does he act? So what her is saying is, when Biden, when this problem erupted, uh, of it being publicly known, or at least known to the Justice Department, that Biden had hoarded classified information, at that point. Uh, he cooperated with the investigators and allowed the FBI, without having to get a search warrant or anything else, to search his residences uh, and and so forth. Whereas Trump fought the government for eighteen months, and even when he got a subpoena, um, you know, he defied the subpoena. So that's what they mean by that. I'm not disagreeing with you about the conduct. Yeah. I think that you know the conduct goes back forever. I think I'm just I think I'm just at a point where I don't trust them. And I, I don't trust that, you know what I mean? Like they seem to have given Biden 
more heads up than they did with I, I just I don't know. Yes. I, I guess at this point my viewpoint of the government is so badly damaged. Um and I my distrust in Biden is so high that I, I just believe at this point that like the rule of law doesn't exist anymore, that we are an inherently corrupt nation. Uh, and this administration is one of the most corrupt administrations we've ever had. So I guess I just I don't believe anything that they tell us. And then even yeah, looking well, at her's report, who's supposed to be a good guy, and you give Biden this ridiculous out that, you know, anyone with any sort of uh, reasonable perspective, any level of objectivity could say that's crazy. Yeah, well, I don't you know, if they hadn't done, you know, they 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 obviously went um um, you know, they went crazy on the Trump case. And if they had given Trump a pass, I don't think anybody would have a lot of heartburn about, you know, Biden getting a pass, especially since nobody really expected him to be prosecuted anyhow. But I, I do think to your point that if you're going to play this two tiers of justice game and they're unabashed about it now, they're completely un- unapologetic. And, you know, as we said before, you know, in New York, they're running for office saying, you know, elect me and I'm going to get this guy. Um, so I, I think the, the credibility of the justice system depends on people's belief that they're going to treat everybody the same, that we actually do have equal protection of law. And we all know that, like, you know, historically, people who have connections do better than people who don't have connections. But we've never had a situation where it's as stark as it is today, that if you have a D after your name, you get one quality of justice. And if you're Trump or a conservative Republican, you get a very different, you wouldn't even call it a quality of justice. It's it, you, you basically get persecuted, at least when you have the Obama, Biden, Harris Justice Department, which we've had for, you know, 12 of the last 16 years. You know, and, and last question, and, and Andy, I appreciate you taking so much time. It, it's it's hard to really go through this stuff quickly, you know, because there's so much to it. Right. And there's so much complexity. And I, I just I, I learn so much every time I have you on. So I really appreciate you taking so much time with us. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask before we go. Uh, so I, I think politically, the case out of Fulton County has been badly damaged by Fannie Willis and her actions. Um, but legally, has it been damaged? by her actions. Yeah. The thing that bothers me most about this, Lisa, is I think the problem with the Fulton County case is the case. You know, I think that that um, Fannie Willis's actions are an add on that that should um, make people who were suspicious of this whole thing more confident in their suspicions. That is that like either, you know, she's acting very politically or she's incompetent. Um, but the problem with the Fulton County case is the case. The problem with the Fulton County case is she's indicted 19 people as if they were an organization. Whereas the fact of the matter is the 19 people she's indicted, the only thing they've ever done together is get indicted. You know, I think most of the people didn't even that's, know that's a good way of, to say it. <laughs> of the existence of, of, um, of what some of the others were doing. And the biggest problem she has, and this this goes to a very basic thing in the criminal law, that it frustrates me that people don't don't seem to grasp. When it, I think if this was a Democrat who was in the hot seat, it would be the first thing on everyone's mind. And that is, it, it, to have a conspiracy in the criminal law, 
You have to uh, a conspiracy is a is an agreement by two or more people to violate a law, right? And the reason I make that basic point is trying to overturn the result of an election is not a crime. There's a process for trying to overturn the result of an election in all 50 states. Um, now, you can, in the course of, let's say you had 19 people who agreed to try to overturn the election. You don't have a conspiracy because that's not a crime. You can't have, in the criminal law, you can't have an agreement to do something that's legal be charged as a conspiracy. That's not to say that if you have 19 people who agree on a legal objective, that everything they do in trying to accomplish it is legal. So like if they went into, um, you know, into if they had unauthorized access into the, into the voting database as like one scheme charges, that would be a crime. But that wouldn't turn it into, uh, you know, that wouldn't turn a conspiracy to overturn the result of an election into a crime. It's just not one. So I think Fannie Willis may be competent enough to understand this, and therefore she tried to paper it over with RICO. But, you know, having tried a lot of federal RICO cases, um, you know, more decades ago than I, I care to admit, um, she doesn't have a RICO because a RICO, a racketeering organization is something like, for example, the Gambino family of the mafia, right? Where everybody understands that they're associated with a particular organization and the activities that they commit are, in addition to enriching themselves, they are, they are, they are conducted for the purpose of sustaining the existence of the organization so that, that it continues to, to garner wealth and power. Now, compare that to what we have here, which is 19 people, who, who, many of whom don't even know each other or know of each other, and they don't think of themselves as an organization. They, don't think, they didn't say, gee, let me join the enterprise of trying to get the election overturned. And even if there was such a thing, which is unrealistic, that endeavor was going to end on January 20th of 2021, one way or the other. Either Trump was, either they were going to achieve the objective of getting the election overturned or they weren't. But the organization was not one that they were trying to sustain in time and space so that it could gain more uh, wealth and power, it was going to disintegrate. So she doesn't have a conspiracy and she doesn't have a RICO. And as a result, I, I've always thought this case was ridiculous. Now we find that she's engaged in all kinds of um, what seem to be corrupt activities. Um, the salacious stuff is one thing, and it's what you know, obviously it gets, uh, unfortunately it's gotten more attention than the, than the, um, infirmities of the case has gotten. But I think in terms of her exposure, um, the thing that's important is, did she misrepresent to the county that she needed these funds to address a COVID backlog? And then she diverted some of the funds that she was given. This is extra funding she was given to hire this Wade guy who doesn't have any experience doing racketeering cases. So they clearly didn't need him for that purpose. 
and she paid him more lavishly. She, he made even more money than she makes as the as the boss of the office. And so she diverted the funds for the COVID backlog to pay him. And then she derived benefit from it because they go off on these lavish vacations. And in the meantime, it looks like they've lied potentially on sworn documents. So they have ethical problems and they have potential fraud problems. The reason I lay out the fraud in that way is there's a federal statute that makes it a crime if you are a a state agency that gets government funding, which the Fulton County District Attorney's Office does, uh, to commit fraud. You know, for example, to divert funding for uh, your own purposes. And, you know, this is a delicious little detail to probably end with, but uh, fraud in, in, uh, in federal law is a racketeering predicate. So I don't know if she's got a RICO case in Fulton County, but someone may end up having a RICO case against her, although <laughs> a competent prosecutor wouldn't charge it as a RICO because you don't try to turn something um, into you know, an elaborate circus when you have a statute like fraud that's perfectly serviceable to the purpose. And what I've always said about Fannie Willis's case is not that no wrongdoing necessarily took place, but it should have been charged as like eight different small crimes. And you're seeing that from the fact that four people have pled guilty and not a single one of them pled guilty to RICO. Not a single one of them is looking at a day in jail. So all this was, was basically she did the case that was the dream case of the January 6th committee. She got a big splash for, you know, saying Rico in connection with Trump because that makes him sound like a mafia don. Uh, but when push comes to shove, she doesn't have a Rico. And when she pled people out, they didn't plead to Rico. And a normal, competent prosecutor in a racketeering case, the first cooperators who come in the door, what you do is you make them plead guilty to the Rico charge. You know, they get into court and the judge says to them, what did you do to make you guilty? And you say, I was involved in a racketeering conspiracy. Here's what I did. Here's what President Trump did. Here's what all these other people did. And then if you get that, the reason prosecutors want that is it convinces the public that you actually have a case and it makes your guilty pleading cooperators much more credible in front of the jury than they'd otherwise be. So if you if you actually have a RICO case, you make those people plead guilty to RICO. She made them plead guilty to nonsense and they're not even, you know, for a case where where they said in the press release uh, after they announced it, that our democracy was hanging by a thread. We almost lost our country. We got four of the main people pled guilty and they're not doing a day in jail. Some insurrection. Yeah, it's like the, the threat to democracy people sure love destroying it. <laughs> You know, Andy, Andy, Andy McCarthy, I, I really appreciate your time. You do uh, such a great job breaking this all down and uh, just speaking from experience and uh, you, you really break it down in, in such a in such a meaningful way. So I just really appreciate you taking the time to, to join the show and to do that for my audience and me. Thanks so much, Lisa. It's been a pleasure. That was Andy McCarthy. Appreciate him taking so much time to break down all those complicated issues. I appreciate you at home for listening every Monday and Thursday, but you can listen throughout the week. I want to thank John Cassio, my producer, for putting the show together. Until next time.
Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.